Thank you, Pastor. It's good to uh, be with you this morning. Be back, actually. I was here in uh, 2006. It's been a while. I think some things have changed. But uh, it's good to be here. I have a couple of uh, mundane things to do. Not really mundane, but they're kind of like business. And then we're going to get into the Word. But uh, the first is that uh, if you were not here in the previous hour when I did a seminar, but you now you've gotten motivated, hopefully, because you heard about all these people that got in line and have signed up, and I had two days of appointments to fill, and we filled two days, and now we're on a third day. So that must say something, right? Yeah. So if you weren't here, I think those who were here will tell you, get in line afterwards. So we're going to talk about legacy. So there's an insert in your bulletin. It's green in color. It says, how may we serve you? And if I can assist you in this concept of legacy, estate planning, wills, trust, I'd be glad to do that. So just fill that out after the service. I'll be there in the foyer by the table. If you'll come back out there, hand this to me, and I'll give you a little booklet called an inventory that you can work on between now and, what are the dates? We're now doing March 18th, 19th, and 20th. So... If you want to meet with me on one of those days, we'll schedule an appointment and uh, sit down and spend some quality time together and hopefully uh, do you some some serious good. I do want to bring you greetings this morning from our president, Dr. John Stumbo. John is uh, in his second year of the presidency, and uh, we are just blessed in the Christian Missionary Alliance that God has raised up a very unique man who is uh, leading us, and um, we are so grateful. And he asked that I bring you his greetings this morning and his words of appreciation on his behalf, but also on all of the Alliance constituency around the world to say thank you for praying, for giving to the work of the Alliance and moving it forward and advancing God's kingdom. So thank you for being a part of that, and uh, thank you for inviting me. And uh, we are delighted to be here. So those are greetings from John. And <clears throat> as we look into the scripture this morning, I so appreciate what your pastor said during communion, except he got me worried for a minute. I thought he's preaching my sermon. <clears throat> so you're going to get part of it twice, the second half of my message. But I really appreciated the emphasis because <clears throat> if I were a, a, a full-time pastor in the same church every Sunday... I think I would request that before I preach, we sing the chorus, Ancient Words. You familiar with that? Ancient words, ever true, changing me, changing you. They're ancient words, but they are ever, ever true, and will be for all of eternity. And so we're going to turn to the ancient words this morning. But what's amazing is that those, although those words were written 2,000 and some of them 4,000 years ago, They are so relevant for today. And only God could do that. Who wrote a book 4,000 years ago that's really relevant today? No one but God. And so I want to invite you to turn with me, beginning first in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 12, and then a little later we're going to move to Romans, chapter 10, and we're going to do kind of a side-by-side comparison this morning of this question of what will your legacy be? And last Sunday morning you saw a little video of uh, people being asked that question about legacy, and I hope that caused you to start thinking. 
<clears throat> and you will think about what will your legacy be. I'd like, I'd like to ask you to do something this morning, and that is, as you look at the screen, to put yourself in the shoes of the individual who's standing there at the fork in the road. <clears throat> and, you know, Yogi Berra, who used to play baseball for the New York Yankees and who's known for his yogiisms, had one that said, when you come to the fork in the road, take it. <clears throat> I want to talk to you about which fork do you take this morning. And I'm going to lay before you two perspectives from Scripture of how we live out our lives and the legacy that we're going to leave. first one's found in Luke 12. The second one is found in Romans chapter 10. So if you have your Bible with you this morning, I'd like to invite you to turn to Roman, excuse me, Luke 12, verse 13. We're going to read through verse 21. And I'm reading from uh, the New American Standard Bible, so it could be a little different than yours. Someone in the crowd said to him, that is to Jesus, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the family inheritance with me. <clears throat> but he said to him, Man... Who appointed me a judge or arbiter over you? Then he said to them, Beware, and be on your guard against every form of greed. For not even when one has an abundance does his life consist of his possessions. And he told them a parable, saying, The land of a rich man was very productive. And he began reasoning to himself, saying, what shall I do, since I have no place to store my crops? Then he said, This is what I will do. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones, and there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have many goods laid up for many years to come. Take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, you fool, this very night your soul is required of you. And now who will own what you have prepared? So is the man who stores up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. In your bulletin this morning, there's an outline of the message, and I'd encourage you to to use that. And you may want to jot some notes down as we talk about this. Feel free to do that. What will your legacy be? As we read Luke chapter 12, we're going to call this option number one, building bigger barns, building bigger barns. <clears throat> the man is faced with a dilemma. The land has been so productive that he can't get it all in his barn. So he talks to himself about building bigger barns. I want you to notice the premise that Jesus begins with in verse 15. Basically, it's the second part of the verse. Not even when one has an abundance does his life consist of his possessions. It seems like in this day we're so focused on material things. And people are kind of defined by material achievements and wealth. You know, we hold up in society these people who have achieved great wealth. But Jesus said, not even when one has an abundance does his life consist of his possessions. 
Jesus is saying God doesn't define us by material things. He defines us by the inner person, by who's in here, what's in the heart. That's the premise that Jesus begins with. And then he begins to, to reveal the story to us in the form of a parable about this specific man. And he basically is saying to us that I want you to see the errors of this man's lifestyle. The first one is found in verse 17. And he began reasoning to himself, saying, What shall I do, since I have no place to store my crops? Here's his error. Notice the personal pronouns. What shall I do, since I have no place to store my crops? We could call this the self-centered life. You ever meet people who are self-centered? It's all about them. All you hear is I, me, my. I don't know about you, but there are times when those people grate on me very quickly, and I just have to, I just feel like I got to get out of this person's presence. They're driving me crazy. But let's be careful that we judge others too quickly, that we at times may not get into this ourselves, and it becomes all about us and not about others, and particularly not about the Lord. But this man is living a self-centered life. It's just all about him. He's the only thing he knows about life is himself. And so he lives the self-centered life. Secondly, he builds on his error. Notice the personal pronouns are still here in verse 18. Then he said, this is what I will do. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones, and there I will store all my grain and my goods. The thought just crossed my mind when he says, I will tear down all my barns and build bigger ones. He really wasn't going to do that himself, right? He was a wealthy man. Someone else was going to tear them down. Someone else was going to build build them. But he says, this is what I'm going to do. And and I believe we can call this the self-centered man who's living now also the self-directed life. This is what I will do. It's his plan. It's his idea. You know, he's, he's faced with a problem, and all of a sudden, it's like this light goes on. And he says, this is what I'll do. Have you ever had a moment like that? My wife's not here this morning. Even if she were here, she knows that she's not allowed to say amen at this point in the sermon. <clears throat> because I've had some moments where I had what I thought was a great idea. The light went on. And then all of a sudden, as time went on, I began to realize that I had gone down the wrong path. And oh, what a mess I have created. And how costly this has become. How frustrating of a moment I find myself in. And of course, the only thing you can do is repent and say, God, forgive me. Because this was my plan and it clearly wasn't yours. Because if it was yours, it wouldn't look such a, like such a mess. You ever been down that road? I'm just the only one, huh? How about your wives? Are you going to testify for your husband and husbands for wives? And We've all done it, you know. And part of it is because we just, we just react so quickly sometimes. We, we so lack prayer. We so lack dependence upon God. We, we don't consult Him. And we just have to repent and turn around and say, God, I need to come back and start all over again because this is tr- clearly not your plan. So he's living the self-directed life. And it looks like that. His barn is gone, and now he has bigger barns, multiple barns. 
But we notice also Jesus tells us there's the third error in his life. It's found in verse 19. Soul, he says to himself, Soul, you have many goods laid up for many years to come. Take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry. This is what we could call the self-sufficient life. He's basically looking at everything he has. And and what is he really saying? I really don't need God. I got it. I got everything. You know, just sit back and take your ease. Eat, drink, and be merry. Because you got it all. You got everything you need. There's a caution here. The caution is this. What may be in abundance today will not be in abundance tomorrow. As a matter of fact, it may be gone tomorrow. Anybody remember 2008? What happened to your 401k and your IRA? Most of us aren't old enough, but maybe if you are, you can remember the stories of the Great Depression, of people who lost everything they had and they jumped out of the windows of buildings and took their lives because they were so dependent upon those things. He makes two presumptions. He says, first of all, I have many goods. Again, it could be gone. We have no clue. And we don't even have a clue if it's enough for what may come our way tomorrow. And he says, for many years to come. He's sitting back thinking, i got a long life ahead of me. A long life ahead of me. And God says, tonight, wow, man, did his world change in a hurry. No guarantees, friends. No guarantees. You cannot guarantee me that I'll make it to Warren, Ohio this afternoon. I came very close to death in 2008 in a, in a very prominent medical center under what was supposed to have been a very minor procedure. And I got as close as you can come without going. No guarantees. And so I lived life a little differently than I did before 2008. I realized that every day is a gift and and tomorrow is not guaranteed. But that's okay because I know where I'm headed. But that's the way this man was living life. Self-centered, self-directed, self-sufficient. Now God steps into the picture. And says to him, you fool. I don't know about you, but I don't want to come to the end of life and hear those two words. I don't want that on my tombstone. You fool. <laughs> you know? Not, not very good. I've seen some strange things on tombstones, but um, not, I don't want to see you fool. I know what I want to see. I want to hear. But he lived his life so foolishly. So the question is, uh, that looked like a very good way to live life? Apparently not. Not from God's perspective. And really not from the believer's perspective as well. So, is there something better? Well, there is. Let's take a look at it. We'll call it the second option. It's found in Romans chapter 10. If you have your Bibles and turn there, I'll read this text of Scripture. The pastor was quoting this during communion. Verse 14. How then will they call on him in whom they... Excuse me, let me back up to verse 13. For whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? How will they believe in him in whom they have not heard? How will they hear without a preacher? 
How will they preach unless they are sent? Just as it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news of good things. Option number two, not building bigger barns, but what we'll call endowing the evangel. The evangel is the proclaimer of the gospel. Now, in reality, every one of us is to be a proclaimer of the gospel. That was the challenge before communion. We're all evangels. But as Paul writes this text under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he seems to be talking about those who vocationally are called to the life of proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's where they they get their living from. They have given all of their life to this. Pastors, missionaries, Bible teachers, evangelists, numbers of people fit into the category. But that seems to be whom he is speaking of. And we know Paul was the church planter missionary. Apostle. And so there is a premise for this text as well, or for this this passage as well, and it's found in that first verse we read. It's an emphatic promise from God. Whoever, who's whoever? Whoever. (laughs) Anyone. Anyone who calls. Anyone who in a moment, in the moment of reality, who says, I'm lost. I'm lost without God. I'm on my way to hell. I'm lost. Whoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Whoever from their desperation of lostness who cries out to God, Lord, save me. Greatest prayer ever prayed in the Bible was Peter's prayer when he's walking on water. Lord, save me. That was an impressive prayer. You know, he just got to the point. He was sinking. And when someone's lost, they come to the place of realizing their losses and they simply pray, Lord, save me. And, and Paul says, God will save them. It's a promise. It's a guarantee. Mark it down. God will not reject any sincere heart who cries out in desperation for salvation. So that's the promise, the premise. And then Paul begins to ask questions, and he's building one upon the other. Question number one, found in uh, verse 14, the first part of the verse. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? Think about this for a moment. There are probably billions of people in this world who have no belief system in Jesus. As a matter of fact, missiologists tell us there are probably several billion people who may not ever even have heard the name of Jesus. People who are locked away in countries where the gospel has not penetrated, where darkness veils. North Korea, Iran, Saudi Arabia, places where a church is not allowed to exist. People cannot openly proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. And Paul says, how are people going to call on him in whom they have not even believed? I don't know how many belief systems there are, but there are many of them. You know, we could... We could start listing them off and we'd never get to even a small percentage of them. Today, of course, the predominance of Islam is on our minds. And Buddhism and Shintoism and Confucianism and all of the religions of the world that have no place for Christ. How are they going to believe or how are they going to call on him in whom they have no belief system? And then he says... How will they believe in him and whom they have not heard? 
they haven't heard of Jesus. Every time I read that, that part of that verse, I think this thought, how many times have I heard? As a young child, how many church services, how many songs about Jesus have I sung? How many radio broadcasts, television preachers, how many times have I heard the story of Jesus? And to think that there are some people who haven't even heard one time, that doesn't seem right, does it? And what are we doing about those who have never heard one time? Are we doing everything we can to see that they get to hear about Jesus? So that they can believe in him. And I want to I make an emphasis here that's so important. How passionate are you this morning about Jesus? How strongly do you believe that Jesus is the only answer? We're living in a world today where we often hear people say, Well, you know, there are many roads to heaven. There are many ways to get to heaven. Is that true? That's not what Jesus said. John's Gospel, Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. No one. Except through me. There is no other name under heaven whereby man can be saved. So it's Jesus and the Alliance, our founder wrote a hymn, Jesus only. Probably ought to resurrect that hymn. Jesus only is our message. That's all we have to tell people is Jesus. Because why? Because there's no other way. He is the, way, the only way. So how passionate are you about this this morning? Some time ago I was preaching in the uh, Fallen Timbers Church south of Toledo. And I got to this place in the text, and I, I, got, I was so impressed by the Holy Spirit to really dwell on this, to really hammer this. And I did, like I had never done before. And afterwards, a lady, a man and a woman came through the line, and she shook my hand, and she said, that really gave me something to think about. And then the gentleman introduced his, his wife to one of the pastors, and And so afterwards, I asked about this couple. And they said, well, she rarely ever comes to church with him. They haven't been married very long, but they rarely ever come to church. She ever rarely comes to church. And she's the leader of a group of New Agers in our community. And they embrace almost anything and everything. And immediately, I realized why God pushed me on that one so hard that morning. It was for her. If it was for no one else, it was for her. And I don't know what's happened in her life, but I'm praying for that lady that God will take that truth and burn it in her heart to know that Christ is the only way and all of that other stuff is a waste of time. Amen. That's true for everyone this morning. Do we believe it? Do we live it? Do we tell people that? There are not many ways to heaven. There's only one way. Thirdly, he asked this question, and how will they hear without the evangel? How are these people going to hear unless somebody proclaims Christ to them? They will not. And so it's our job. It's either our job to go do it, or it's our job to see that somebody else goes and does it. 
to send somebody. So we're in one or two categories this morning. Either we're the sent ones or we're to be the sending ones. In some cases, you will be the the sent one, but in most cases, we'll be the sending ones, or we can be the sending ones. And that's the third thing that he gets to. How are they going to proclaim? How are they going to preach this message unless they are sent? To those people who are on the other side of this world, unless someone is sent over there to them, they're not going to hear this. Unless somehow we send the gospel to them, they will not hear it. Do you know that we're living in the greatest age in human history as Christians? We have means to proclaim the gospel that generations before us never even dreamed about. Not only the evangel going, not only radio and literature, which we've had for years, but, and television, but now the internet and Facebook and all of those other things. We've got all of those venues available to us. And it's amazing what's happening. Because some of those are permeating places where, where the evangel hasn't been able to go physically. But Paul asks the question, how are they going to proclaim Christ unless they are sent? And so, where are you in the sending? Have you stepped into the position of the sender? Friends, I believe that we're missing something very phenomenal in the evangelical church today because not many of our people have become senders. They haven't embraced it. How do you send? Well, you send first by releasing, by letting go. I remember in uh, 1990, I became the pastor of of the Alliance Church in Worcester, Ohio. <clears throat> Within a couple of months, we called a, a young couple, Andrew and Esther Schaefer, some of you may know them, to be our associates. And they were bound for the mission field within a couple of years. And so they came to do their home service. Two years and three months. It was the most blessed years of ministry we ever experienced, my wife and I. They were a wonderful couple, still dear friends. We had a relationship that was just unbelievable. But, but you know what happened? December the 31st, 1992, they had to leave us. And we had to let them go. And I have to tell you, to be honest this morning, I didn't want to let them go. <laughs> I knew God had called them, but I really didn't want them to go. And our church didn't want them to go. Our church had come to love this couple and their children. But we knew God had called them, and so we, we sent them, we released them, and we gave them our blessing. And to this day, that church still faithfully prays for them. When they're home from the field, they go back there and speak. And they speak in many churches, and many people are praying for them. Have you ever asked a missionary, what's the most important thing I can do for you? You know the answer, don't you? Prayer. Pray for us. Oh, the, the privilege of praying for those whom God has sent. If you're not involved in that, get involved. Get on prayer lists. Get on their prayer letters. Get their prayer requests. Pray for them. Pray for their families. You know, 
I believe that we're living in a day where prayer is, is needed maybe greater than any time before because this world is moving in on us so quickly. Look at what's happening. I believe our missionaries in the days ahead, and I hope, I pray I'm not a prophet in this, but I'm afraid the day is coming when we're going to see the martyrs in the Christian Missionary Alliance again. Because they've gone to places that are hard, places that don't want them, and there are people whom if they knew they were there and what they were doing, they would take their lives. And we need to pray for them. Pray God's hedge about them. And stand in the gap for them. Are you praying? And then the one that we, I think we are most hesitant to address is the giving. This costs money. We have a budget in the Christian Missionary Alliance of $42 million. We haven't met that budget in years. <laughs> if we could and exceed it, we could send even more. And we have young people who want to go. And we're sending some, but we can't send them all, simply because of finances. Years ago, my wife and I came to the conclusion that we couldn't be left out of this. We had to be a part of this. And it's not a, we have to do it. We want to do it. I want to be involved in this. Why? Because this is eternal. This is the only thing that ultimately is going to count. When you read your Bible, I want to challenge you, you think about this. What's, what's eternal of Scripture? What does the Bible say is eternal? God is eternal. The Word of God is eternal. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my Word will not pass away. So heaven and earth are not eternal. They're going to get made new. There's only one other thing that I can find that's eternal, and that is people. The souls of men and women and children are eternal. And people are going to exist eternally either in heaven or in hell. One or the other. And for those who say that uh, the scripture doesn't teach that or that that's irrelevant and we shouldn't be proclaiming them, I'm sorry, but it's there. And it's what God told us. <clears throat> he told it to the church to motivate us to, to snatch them from hell. So, so have you entered into this? Have you become a sender by the giving? By the giving. I often think of the day that when we stand before the Lord, there are going to be regrets. But I'm convinced there are some things that, that we're going to recognize. And, and, you know, I'll never find myself saying, I wish I would have prayed less. Oh, if I'd have just given some less and used more on myself. No, I'm never going to say that. For those of you who have seen the movie Schindler's, Schindler's List, the end of that movie is so compelling. When he says, I could have done more. I could have sold this ring and saved more. This car and saved others. I could have done more. That's what we're going to say. I could have done more. And if we're listening to God, the Holy Spirit, He'll tell us what to do, where to give, 
You ask, well, how do I do it? I, I looked at your offering envelope. You know what it says? Great Commission Fund. That's missions. That's sending. And you can have a part in that of the eternal. What a privilege. I usually don't bog down that long. (laughs) What does God respond? Remember to the one who built the bigger barns, he said, you fool. What does he say here? How beautiful. To God, God says, this is beauty. This is what I find beautiful. Feet of those who bring good news. Let me close with a story. Ed Thompson, as a teenager, came to faith in Christ and also knew immediately that God's call was upon his life to preach the gospel as a missionary. And so he set off for the Missionary Training Institute in Nyack, New York, back in the 1940s, to give his life to being trained to be a missionary. And he, as a student there, he met a young lady by the name of Ruth Stebbins, and they fell in love. And on their very graduation day, they were married. They did their home service, and the Christian Missionary Alliance said to them, we would like to send you to the country of Cambodia to preach the gospel. And they went. And they began to proclaim Christ to the Khmer people, tremendously resistant to the gospel, but they were faithful. Excuse me, just... Went too far. Can I back that up, Jerry? Just one. Thank you. There we go. They began to raise their family, serve the Lord faithfully. Fourteen years they spent in Cambodia trying to reach the Khmer people, but the fruit was very minimal. Towards their last year in the country, they began to hear of a people group called the Manung people. They lived in the highlands of Cambodia against the Vietnamese border. And they began to strategize about reaching them, but they came to the end of their 14th year, which was their year of what we used to call furlough, and they came back to the States for one year, and that was 1966-1967. During that time, the country of Cambodia fell to communism. And all missionaries were, were expelled from the country and church buildings were tore down and persecution broke out and they couldn't go back. So in 1967, in that summer, they, they asked the Christian Missionary Alliance to send them to Vietnam because they knew that the Manong people crossed over the border into the highlands of Vietnam and they wanted to try to reach them. If you're my age, or maybe even just a little younger, you remember 1967 in Vietnam was not a picnic. The war was going on. It was a dangerous place, but they went wanting to serve Christ, and they went to the city of Bam Metuit to proclaim Christ. And there they were to learn the language of the Manong people so that they could eventually reach out to them. But in January of 1968 there came what was called the Tet Celebration. That's the new year in Vietnam, a a great celebration. And there was proclaimed a 
a ceasefire, a truce between the North Viet Cong, the South Vietnamese, the Americans, and the other forces that were there, that for three days they would lay down their weapons and there would be no fighting. But on the very first morning of the ceasefire, the truce, the Viet Cong broke it, and they attacked. And unfortunately for our missionaries in Bombay Tuat on the mission's compound, they were right in front of a South Vietnamese military base, right in the line of fire. They woke that morning to mortar fire and machine gun fire. Ed and Ruth Thompson, their children were out of country in boarding school, but Ed and Ruth ran to a makeshift bunker in the backyard of their house. And one of our other missionaries, Ruth Wilding, also ran from her home to that bunker. And just as she reached the bunker, she was shot down with machine gun fire and fell into the bunker. To be certain that no one survived or a North Viet Cong soldier threw a grenade into that bunker, and they were all killed. And they gave their lives for Christ, trying to reach the Manong people. They were buried in Vietnam. Many of our missionaries were buried there. And things began to deteriorate and go downhill from that point on. Gradually, many of our missionaries came home, and by 1975, the last missionaries, along with all of the, of the American forces, evacuated Vietnam. The last helicopter to leave the American embassy in Saigon held one of our missionaries, our field chairman, Tom Stebbins. Tom was the brother of Ruth Stebbins Thompson. Last one to leave. And now our missionaries were gone, and the question then was, what will happen to the church in Vietnam? Will it survive? Great persecution broke out. We began to hear the stories. Pastors were imprisoned. Some were killed. Many Christians were persecuted. Communism now ruled. And time went on. Four years ago, in 2011, the Alliance celebrated the 100th anniversary of our entrance into that country. We went there in 1911. And we were able to go back, our president and our vice president of international ministries, and Tom Stebbins. Now Tom is about 80 years of age. Tom went back, and he was actually the keynote speaker for three days of celebration, celebrating that historic moment. And what did they find as they came back to Vietnam? In 1975, when our church collapsed and our missionaries left the country, there were about 60,000 believers. But in 2011, they found that this church had grown to 1.2 million believers. The largest alliance church in the world. Four, three times the size of the mother church here in America. The blood of the martyrs is the seed of revival. God said, I will build my church. Gates of hell will not prevail against it. God built his church. What about the Manong people who were the target, the Thompsons and others, found there in the highlands of Cambodia and Vietnam? In 1968, there were only a few hundred believers among the Manong people. But in 2011, today, 
There were over 40,000 believers in that church. One of the representatives of the Manong people in that celebration was asked, how is it that this church grew so dramatically? His answer was this. We heard that the missionaries gave their lives for a message that they wanted to bring to us. And we said, if something is worth dying for, it must be true. We must find out what this message is. And they sought it out. And thousands and tens of thousands of them came to Christ. The legacy of Ed and Ruth Thompson moves on to their son David Thompson and his wife Becky. David's parents were killed. Becky's father was taken by the Viet Cong, Archie Mitchell, and never heard from. Only her mother survived. But David and Becky founded the Bangalore Evangelical Hospital in Gabon, West Africa. Served there for over 35 years. Today, they serve in one of the closed countries in medical ministry. David is a gifted surgeon, gifted speaker. I hope maybe you've heard him, read his book on call. Their daughter, Rebecca, is an alliance missionary today in the country of Cambodia. That's a legacy. That's a legacy. Just in a moment or two, let me close the story of Ed Thompson because you have to hear the rest of the story. At the age of 16, when he found Christ as his Savior and committed his life to missions, he came home from church to tell his mother and his unbelieving stepfather of his decision. His unbelieving stepfather became so irate that he told him to leave the house and never come back. He packed his belongings into a hat box and he left home. He moved into the attic of the house of his Sunday school teacher. For the next two years, he lived there until he finished high school. When he finished high school, he took a job that summer in a steel mill and a second job in a hospital. In those two jobs, he earned enough money for his first year at the Missionary Training Institute in Nyack, New York. The day came when he boarded that train and set out for Nyack, and on his way there, someone stole all of his money from his luggage, and he arrived at Nyack without anything except what was in his pockets. He told no one of what had happened. He came to registration day, and he stood in the line before the registration desk, only a few students in front of him. He did not know what he was going to do. Those were the days when you either paid or you went back home. No loans, no grants, none of those things. As he stood in the line, Getting closer and closer, an official from the college came and stood by his side and took him by the arm and took him to the side. And he said, Ed, somebody has left a legacy to the training institute. And we're going to give it to you, and there's enough here for your first year of college. God provided. The person who gave the gift is probably now in heaven with the Thompsons. We don't know who that person was. It doesn't matter. God knows. But when they gave the gift, did they ever dream that a couple would go to a place of Cambodia and ultimately Vietnam, would give their lives, but thousands and tens of thousands and even millions would come to faith in Christ and they would leave a legacy to their children and their grandchildren who would proclaim the gospel? They didn't know. But you know, that's the promise of Scripture. God says... Even though we don't know, he knows, and 
He will bless it and He will multiply it when we give it. So when you give, know this, God will bless it. God will multiply it. And so our question is this. What's our legacy going to be? Building bigger barns or endowing the evangels? What are we going to commit our lives to? I can tell you assuredly of this. The barns are temporal. The impact of the evangels will be eternal. Let's pray. As we quiet our hearts, just before I close this in prayer. Use these moments to respond to the Holy Spirit of God. What has He said to you? What is He calling you to do? I'm convinced if we're serious Christ followers this morning, He's saying to every one of us, get in the game. Get off the sidelines and get in the game. Become a sender. Endow the evangel. This is God's heart. This is why Jesus came to deliver lost people. Gracious Father, the first thing we have to say is thank you for saving us. Thank you for Jesus who went to the cross for us and that we've come to faith and life in him. But Lord, it wasn't just for us, it was for the whole world. And there are many yet who haven't heard. Help us to be about the business of seeing to it that they hear, of endowing the evangels, of becoming senders. Lord, speak to us. How do we do it? Who do we release? Who and how do we pray for them? And what do we give? If we seek you with our hearts, you will direct us. So seal your word to our hearts this morning. Oh God, do a work that is eternal to the advancement of your kingdom. We pray it to this end and this end only. Not to any recognition for ourselves or our glory, but to the glory of Christ. That he might be exalted to the ends of the earth. And that many will come to know him and walk with him through eternity. We pray it in his name and to his glory. Amen. Amen. There's a song that... um, is, is a song that moves my heart. Thank you for giving to the Lord. The picture of that song, one by one they came, far as the eye could see, somehow touched by your generosity. What a day that's going to be when we see the multitudes coming from every tribe and nation and peoples and tongue and forever with them, we will worship the Lord. That's the end we're looking for.